Highways Voices, the podcast of Highways News, your one-stop destination for all the news about the highways and transport technology industries and our must-read daily newsletter. Welcome to a special Highways Voices where we hear a challenge to the industry. I want signals to deliver better, more reliable journeys. The second pillar I'm really interested in is promoting active travel. Traffic signals must be central to how we work with people like Active Travel England. And the third pillar is preparing for the future. Discuss how some situations can be solved without building new things. What's interesting, when you present that to engineers, they get angry. Because to an engineer, solving a problem without using engineering is cheating. And look into perception versus reality. You can't trust public opinion on smart motorways because nobody notices a, a, a traffic jam that didn't happen. So the downside of smart motorways is completely salient and visible, and the upside is unseen. A couple of addresses from last week's JCT Traffic Signal Symposium on today's programme, a taste of a great event on Highways Voices. Highways Voices, in association with partner organisations Elkrig, Adept, the Transport Technology Forum and ITS UK. Hello from Paul Hutton, who's just about recovered from a really busy couple of days in Nottingham, but without a doubt the best ever JCT Traffic Signal Symposium. The most people, the most exhibitors, the broadest range of great papers and a fantastic keynote. More on that to come once we've caught up with the latest news on the Highways News website with Adrian Tatum. Essex County Council has started the early engagement process for provision of its highway services beyond 2027. The council's current highway strategic transformation contract ends on the 31st of March that year and with no further option to extend. Therefore, the council has started its journey for discovery regarding how the highway service provision could evolve and innovate beyond this date, the councillor says. The purpose of the notice is to explore further the difference of the contract models available in the highways industry with an opportunity for providers to give their preference through the completion of an online questionnaire. And elsewhere, Lincolnshire County Council has announced that a further £10 million of funds is being ploughed into the authority's road maintenance. The County Council has announced that a further £10 million of funds is being given following a full council meeting. Leader of the Council, Martin Hill OBE, made the announcement that the much-needed additional funds will be used to continue the ongoing work for programme around the county. Councillor Hill said that in light of recent announcements relating to the financial health of authority, he would assure everyone that their own fiscal position is a healthy one. And there was a very different look and feel for children on their trips to school following the introduction of a new 20 mile an hour speed limit zone in Wales. This week, Wales became the first UK nation to introduce a new default 20 mile an hour speed limit on most residential roads across the country. This change is expecting to save up to 100 lives and 20,000 casualties in the first decade alone. Remember, when it comes to industry news, we're the only place you need to go for everything you need to know. Loads more stories are on our site. You can find them all and much, much more at highways-news.com where you can also find links to our LinkedIn and Twitter feeds. And of course, you can sign up for our daily email into your inbox every lunchtime. Highways Voices with Paul Hutton and Adrian Tatum. Swarco improves quality of life by making the travel experience safer, quicker, more convenient and environmentally sound. 
from software as a service traffic management solutions to parking, VMS, EV charging and road marking too, find out how Swarco can deliver more efficient and safer traffic management. Swarco, the better way every day. It was great to see so many industry friends at the JCT Traffic Signals Symposium last week, which Highways News was proud to be a media partner for. It's impossible for me to summarise the two days in one podcast, so I've just picked out two speakers from the first day. Keynote Rory Sutherland to come, but first some important challenges for the industry from the manager of the Trans. Transport Technology Forum, Darren Capes, who's ITS policy lead at the Department for Transport. The thing I want to start off by talking about is the £15 million we handed out in 2021, the, the traffic signal maintenance grant that, that 39 authorities, many of you who are here today, benefited from and were able to use to, to uh, update traffic signal sites and, and undertake some, some maintenance. And this was a really important thing, not because it was a huge amount of money, but because it was a change in the, the way that DFT thinks about maintenance. And it was the first time, certainly in my living memory, and, that, and being the age I am, that's quite a long living memory, it was the first time I can remember where the DFT specifically allocated some of its maintenance pot to fix traffic lights. To make traffic lights work, to make signals work, to deal with detection, to deal with all, lots of the, the on-street niggles that we know affects performance. And we know that... Any, any one of us can, can pluck a figure out the air, but we know that somewhere north of 50% of signals in England have some kind of defect that stops them working to, to their optimum. So we know there's some stuff to do here, but there was a case to prove in the department that this was worth doing. We know that it's worth spending money on, on carriageways, we know it's worth, worth spending money on structures and flood alleviation, and we do lots of that. And, and any of you that work in, in the bits of your authority that get the yearly determination letters will know that we give you blocks of money for all sorts of things. 2021 was the first time we allocated money specifically for signals. So there's a real, there was a real test of two things there. There was a test of, if we inject £15 million into the sector, will it deliver? And there's a second test of, if it delivers, will it make a difference? Well, we, we passed both of those with flying colours, so I want to congratulate all of you in, in the public sector and in industry that helped us spend that money. We delivered something like 240 traffic signal site improvements with that funding across 39 different authorities. Uh, we spent pretty much all the money, there's a little bit left. Even weathering the storm of COVID and, um, and the, the fallout from, from what's happening in the Ukraine and increased parts and, and material costs and reduced labour levels, even, even with all that, we still delivered over 240 schemes and we, we, we spent the money, so that, that was great. Very recently, I've been working with INRIX. Uh, INRIX, we funded a couple of, about three years ago now, four years ago now, to do some work in York to develop a tool called Sign Signal Analytics, which allows them to use the floating vehicle data they have to give some indication of performance at traffic signals in terms of journey time through the signals. It allows you to do things like understand journey time across the junction, the amount of stop-start that we're seeing at the junction, derived from their, their floating vehicle data. So the agreement with INRIX was that once, once we had a, a view of the, the sites that had been upgraded through our funding, we could drop them in from their helicopter funded by DFT, so there was no, no impact in terms of effort on the local authorities, and we could start to analyse the effects of the sites that we knew had been improved. And that's been astonishingly good. We, we've, we've found that at sites where, where, where authorities improved traffic signals rather than mid-block and pedestrians, but actually improved sets of traffic signals, we're seeing an average of 10% reduction in vehicle journey time. 10% reduction. That's less stop-start, that's less emissions, that, that's more stable journeys. That's potentially better public transport services, because in this country, in most places, public transport runs with the live traffic. As we move towards EV, it's better EV performance, because EVs work much better if they can have stable, constant speed journeys and not stop-start. 
So we really proved, we, we really aced that. We really proved to, the, to other people in, in the department and ultimately the Treasury and, and other people in government, we really proved that there is, there is benefit, real tangible benefit in us spending money in, in that area. Now what I'd love to be able to do now is steal the show by announcing an increased amount, a massive amount of funding to continue to, continue to do that great thing. Unfortunately, I can't. That doesn't mean I won't, it just means I can't today. But we are working to do that. We are working to see what options we have to continue that great work and, and put more money into what we know we can do in terms, of, in terms of maintenance. So all I can say is watch this space. And watch this space around issues such as obsolescence as well. Some of you in the room from local authorities, some from the large signal suppliers will know I've been, I've been asking questions this year about, about what, what, what are we doing as a sector about the fact that, that we, we are, are running out of halogen lamps. And the rate, we're turning, the rate we're converting halogen to LED means that we will still be trying to convert to LED when there are no more halogen lamps. We need to accelerate that. We know that there, are, there is a cliff edge coming in terms of 2G and 3G communications. They are going to be switched off. That, that spectrum is going to be reallocated. 3G switch off has already started in some parts of the country. We know that the PSTN, the public telephone network, the copper wire, is going to be switched off. We know that the open reach, that BTR, have a date to turn off the public telephone network. These are all things that will impact the way that, that on-street technology works, and we, we recognise that. And we are working to see what we can do to help with that. So, again, watch this space. Around all this, I've been doing a bit of thinking recently. On what do I think traffic signals are for? What are we doing with traffic signals? And, and, and we know what we're doing with them. We know the technology. We know the, the minutiae of that. But fundamentally, as we try and sell this to, to my political masters and to yours as well, what, what, what are we really aiming for? And if we can put more funding into traffic signals, if we can fund improvements, what are the things that we would like traffic signals to do better? So I've come up with three, three challenges, and these are my challenges. This is my, my interpretation. I'm not, I'm not making a DFT announcement here. I'm just, just speculating personally. But I think there are three challenges that, that as, a, as, a, as a policymaker, I, I, I want signals to deliver better. I want signals to deliver better, more reliable journeys. I think the work we've done with the £15 million proves that that can happen. And any of you who follow cycling will know who Dave Brailsford is, you'll know who Team Sky are, you'll know about his philosophy of marginal gains, and you fix small things and they, they accumulate into an overall success. And I think there's a real opportunity to do that. And by doing that, we can achieve the policy aim, the first pillar, the policy aim of, of more reliable journeys. The second pillar that I'm really interested in is promoting active travel. Using traffic signals as a way of, of making it easier to cycle and walk, making it easier for, for people with mobility and, and, and sensory disabilities, making it easier with people who are vulnerable to access transport. Allowing them to cross roads safely, allowing them to, to get through busy junctions, allowing them to deal with the severance that, that roads cause between residential areas and shopping areas, etc. That's a major win. Traffic signals must be central to how we work with people like Active Travel England to spend their funding to ensure that we, we deliver better active travel. That's the second pillar, that's the second thing that we should be aiming to achieve. And the third pillar is preparing for the future. We should be preparing for the future. We shouldn't just be repairing what we have now. We should be doing that, that's obviously important. But we should be doing it with one eye to the future. Now, you could argue that autonomous vehicles, self-driving vehicles are a long way away, and, and, and I, keep, I, I keep talking about uh, nuclear-powered space hoppers, they may be the future, not within my lifetime, God knows what's going to happen, that's the future. But connected vehicles are now, if you have a vehicle that you've bought that was new within the last four or five years, it's a connected vehicle. The data is there, the comms is there, the ability to, to process that that we've seen in the work that some of the companies here are doing today is there, it's, a, it's happened. 
And that's only going to increase. As we, as we see more micromobility, more, more alternative forms of transport move away from traditional public transport to mobility as a service and, and DRT, all these things are going to change the way that the road network works. And we have an opportunity. We're sat right at the centre of that. We are the people. We are potentially the gatekeepers for the technology on our transport network. So that's the third pillar. We should be building things now. We should be designing things now that prepare for that future. There's a challenge for people leading the industry, a challenge for people working in R&D in the sector, a challenge for people working for companies to make sure that we're selling technology to, into the sector which is right, which is the right technology, which is, 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 is good for that. There's a challenge for local authority engineers when you're procuring to think about how you procure and think about how you buy the right technologies. So we're doing a lot of work in DF2 around this. We're doing a lot of work, and, and I've got some three-letter abbreviation soup for you. So we are, we are doing things like we're developing digital TROs. So we're developing a platform to allow us to digitise the rules of the road. We're working on, on a project called DSIS about how we will ultimately try to digitise the basic logic that we describe traffic signals by. We're doing work on the national parking platform to, to oysterise car parking, make it much easier to in, interact with parking than it is at the moment. Work on things like the national access point or fine transport data, which is about how we coalesce data and share data. Work we're doing across Europe with our partners in, in, in local authorities, in government and in industry to use vehicle data for safety purposes. There's a whole range of work that government are doing in the background to kind of support this, this need to move forward and this need to meet those three challenges, those three pillars. And the thing I'm particularly involved in and particularly passionate about that we're doing is the Transport Technology Forum. Transport Technology Forum exists to be that big tent that government, industry, local authorities can all get in to, to think about those challenges and think about how we as a sector supported by government can deliver that. And it's a two-way, the analogy is getting broken here, it's a two-way tent, is that possible? <laughs> it's a two-way discourse. It's not about government with a megaphone shouting at you all to do stuff. It's about us listening to what we need to do as government as intervention to make this work, to make this happen. If you're not involved in the TTF, please get involved. It does a different thing to, to JCT, and I'm, I'm incredibly keen on what JCT does. I'm incredibly keen to come here whenever I can and speak, because this is a fantastic forum for really getting our sleeves rolled up and, and getting into the minutiae. TTF is different. It's all about how we, how we interact with government, how we set policy, how we, how we procure things. It's a different thing, but it's of equal interest. It's, it's a much more government-focused thing, but I think it's really important. And just to finish on, the, the, one of the things that the TTF is doing at the moment, going back to this idea of we need to be future-proof in buying the right technology, is we're, 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 we've just published something called the Manual for Smart Streets, which is a, is a guide, an online guide, which sits on the TTF website, please go and look at it, which guides you through the process for buying technology in a whole range of delivery areas. And it focuses on, on the policy outcomes we want to achieve. It doesn't focus on the black boxes we buy. It focuses on the policies we want to achieve, the services we want to deliver, and the life cycle of how you will go from conceptualising that through, through design, procurement, delivery, operation. It's not perfect. It's in its beta form. I need as many people as possible to go and look at it, comment on it, throw rocks at it, let me know what's wrong with it, because it's something that I have an opportunity to continue to fund and grow and develop. And something that I want to become as important to this sector as DMRB, the, the Design Manual for Roads and Bridges, is to the, the Concrete and Tarmac Brigade. That's Darren Capes, ITS Policy Lead from the Department of Transport, who was appearing in his capacity as Manager of the Transport Technology Forum at the JCT Traffic Signals Symposium. And there he had some thought-provoking and possibly very, very exciting stuff. This is Highways Voices and highlights of Rory Sutherland's brilliant keynote comes after the partner news. Highways Voices, with the latest news and events from our partner organisations, Elkrig, Adept, 
the Transport Technology Forum and ITS UK. So a reminder you can read more about Darren's challenge to the industry on the Highways News website and there'll be more details from him at the TTF Autumn Update in Birmingham in November and before that at Strictly Highways next month in Blackpool where he'll be one of so many speakers at this growing event on the 4th and 5th of October. Now that event is run by Elkrig and it'll cover four key focus areas aligning to its key activities and initiatives. These are collaboration, innovation, skills and net zero. This year's theme is Collaboratively Speaking, sharing solutions to meet local road demands and the programme features a wide range of presentations and interactive sessions set to share knowledge, spark debate and encourage collaboration. Strictly Highways is Elkrig's flagship event and brings together the whole highways community including councils, the DFT, academia, industry associations, the supply chain and the media. Now talking of industry associations, I. UK has announced the shortlist for its annual awards, which are held as part of its President's Dinner in October. They celebrate transport technology across the industry, covering the use of technological solutions in areas like active travel, enforcement and the environment, as well as celebrating those organisations and individuals who've made a special contribution to the sector. The awards will be announced at the dinner taking place at 113 Chancery Lane, the home of the Law Society on the evening of the 31st of October. You can read all the shortlisted entries on the Highways News website, of course. And a new short video has been released, which gives an overview of the Live Labs 2 programme. ADEPT is collaborating with proactive local highways authority-led partnerships, working alongside commercial and academic partners across the UK to develop and implement zero-carbon and climate-change-focused local roads plans. Seven innovative live lab projects are working across four interconnected themes, led by ADEPT CEO Hannah Bartram. The short video introduces each of the themes and gives a glimpse into the vision for each project. I've put a link to the video in our blurb. Highways Voices, the podcast from highwaysnews.com. Highwaysnews.com. Let's go back to the JCT Traffic Signal Symposium now. And for most people, the highlight of the sessions was a hugely thought-provoking and entertaining speech by the authors of the book Transport for Humans, Pete Dyson and Rory Sutherland. Chatting to event organiser John Nightingale beforehand, he took quite a punt to throw pretty much a whole session to one subject, which, to be honest, wasn't even directly about traffic signals but it was a huge success with everyone listening intently during and buzzing about it afterwards i don't have time to give you all of it now but here are some highlights from a friend of highways voices rory sutherland who explained his approach to transport from a human behavior point of view framing effects in psychology are really really decisive now this will become really really important with road pricing coca-cola more or less lost a chief executive, a CEO, because he happened to riff in a meeting that Coke was thinking of introducing variable pricing for Coke vending machines where the price went up in hot weather. And everybody went bananas and said, that's disgusting, it's basically exploiting uh, our misfortune. And we have a very strong involved sense that a price like Uber surge, surge pricing that basically capitalizes on someone's misfortune any kind of pricing that effectively, like Uber surge pricing during a terrorist outbreak, okay, drives people nuts. Now, interestingly, if the Coke CEO had simply said, we're thinking of producing Coke machines that drop the price of Coke in cold weather, 
everybody would have said, what a great idea. We've got to be, I think, designing, allowing road pricing schemes to be designed by economists and only economists is really, really dangerous because there's a huge amount of price being a perception. And one of the big, strong, really, really strong evolved instincts in humans is a sense of fairness. Actually, sometimes it's a problem because actually, as you all know, probably, it would be much better if people coming up to a, a effectively a queue merged late, okay? Merging late makes more efficient use of the available road. But as Brits, particularly, where queue jumping is somewhere just below kind of paedophilia on the list of, you know, on the list of unacceptable behaviours, okay? The act of cutting into someone late. Now, could we train people to do the Minnesota zipper merge? You know, could we create a norm around that? Because it would hugely improve roads. You've just got to create a new norm. It's very interesting. I don't know. I, I, I travel back, and I, I'm a sort of BA Silver Card member, and so I was allowed to use the priority lane uh, at Hamburg Airport. Now, at most airports, the priority lane through security is just a separate lane, and nobody minds, right? But in Hamburg, the priority lane just means you walk down the thing and then get to cut in front of all the people in the ordinary lane, and they hate you, and you feel terrible. Now, just give an example, a hypothetical theory on road pricing, right? Let's imagine you had a scheme where if there's bad traffic on the M25, you can use the extra premium lane for 20 quid. And people get stuck in traffic and suddenly a lot of Bentleys basically start pulling into the other lane, okay? I think most people would find that hateful, including actually the person in the Bentley who wouldn't be totally happy about it unless he was a complete psychopath. Now, if you change the thinking around that, where you say you can insure your journey the day before, and you can pay five pounds, and you pay five pounds, and in the event that there's a jam, you're allowed to use the premium lane, okay? Now we see it as evidence of the person's foresight, not ability to pay. You know, they obviously had to get to the airport. They obviously have an important meeting, whatever it is. They paid to kind of, you know, guarantee their journey against delays. We'd, we'd view that in a completely different way. And I think there's scope for much, much more commercial innovation on the railways. And I think the trick to road pricing is being really, really clever about it and having a conversation between psychologists and economists, two groups of people who almost never talk. Beautiful ideas. I can, I can probably uh, describe this very quickly. Dot matrix displays. This is about the perception of time. Actually, what we hate is not waiting so much as uncertainty. And so for years, people looked at the easy metric, which was duration of a wait. Effectively, we would rather wait nine minutes for a train knowing it's coming in nine minutes than wait five minutes for a train in a state of not knowing. The most brilliant example of what I call psychological innovation is the Uber map. It doesn't change the quantity of the time you spend waiting, it changes the quality of the wait. Because previously, you ordered a taxi and you hadn't got a clue what was going on. And now suddenly you have this little map and you go, oh, look, he's stuck at those traffic lights, I'll have another pint. The duration of the wait can be exactly the same or even longer. The fact is that your mental state while you're waiting is the real thing you want to optimise for. There are loads and loads of extraordinary mind hacks you can do with that, by the way, which the NHS could learn from a great deal. Okay? One of them is if you make people wait 30 minutes but half through, through their wait you see them and make them wait in another place, they're really, really happy because they're making progress. Whereas if you triage someone and send them back to the original waiting room, they get really pissed off. The worst thing, by the way, you can have in a queue is another queue alongside your queue, which is moving faster than yours is. 
Okay, that's how to make someone in a queue really, really angry. And so I think, I think the scope for psychological improvement is enormous. I'm going to be mischievous here because this is a psychological system solution to an alternative to HS2. What's the point of HS2? Reduce journey time, increase capacity. Now, I simply said to them, look, mate, you're spending 100 billion doing that. I can do some of that with an app which costs a few million quid at most. Okay? And they said, what on earth are you talking about? Well, I said, you want to reduce journey time um, and increase capacity. And I said, all you need me to do is allow me to change one little metric, which is journey time is not time spent on train, but end-to-end -end journey time, right? Because I said, time spent on the train, that's the best bit of the journey, right? Okay? So I said, all you need is whenever I travel, I travel this morning, I buy an advanced ticket, I have to leave a margin of error of about 40 minutes before I go to Manchester, because you can't afford to miss your train, because otherwise your ticket becomes worthless. So every time I travel to Manchester, I basically arrive at Euston, and in the time I'm waiting for my train standing around like an idiot at Burger King, two trains leave for Manchester half empty, 20 and 40 minutes before my own train. So I said, if you actually just have an app which says, I'm here at Euston right now, and they say, pay five quid, you can get on the train in five minutes, provided there's capacity, okay, you've reduced my journey time by 40 minutes, and you've reduced the worst part of the journey. Secondly, by allowing people to travel on earlier empty seats, you increase the capacity of the network, okay? So allowing people to board available seating earlier increases the use of the network. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't build high-speed to all the am, really, but wouldn't you do that first, right? <laughs> because maybe you could solve quite a lot of the problem that way. And so it's very interesting. And what's interesting, when you present that to engineers, they get angry. Because to an engineer, solving a problem without using engineering is cheating, right? I don't think we factor in what it is that people really value. We think it's all about speed and capacity and time. It's much more than that. I mean, privacy, for example, you know, little things like that really, really make a difference. And I think as a result, transport innovation has been held back because we're only looking at the metrics that uh, we know. I'll, I'll end on this one because I think it's just a really, really important case um, where someone had what I'd call a killer psychological insight, okay? I've got an electric car myself. The intention was I'd get an electric car and then my wife would get a petrol car so we'd have one of each. And I like the electric car so much, my wife ended up with an electric car. And she bought the electric Mini, which only has about 100 miles of range, and we don't yet have charging at home. The weird thing, it's absolutely no problem. And then I, I, I struggle with this. What's going on here? Because range anxiety, okay, is a relevant thing in the United States. They have extremes of temperature, okay? The typical household socket only has 110 volts, so you can't plug your car in at your dad's house because it'll take you four days to get 15 miles. Uh, they have huge wildernesses, huge distances. They don't have a rail alternative. There's low population density on a lot of the areas, etc. I get it, okay? My argument was that range anxiety is actually completely irrelevant in countries like the UK and the Netherlands, which are densely populated, except in freak places perhaps like the north of Scotland. The consequence of that phrase, range anxiety, is electric cars are bigger, heavier, more expensive, and use much more of the world's available battery capability than they need to be for small countries. And then I was watching YouTube, and an American guy actually, said what I think was the most insightful comment I've heard. It was one of those million-dollar insights. He just said, it's not range anxiety, it's infrastructure anxiety. 
we've got the wrong end of the stick. And if you think about it, okay, we don't get range anxiety in a car because we basically know, look, there'll be some petrol station somewhere, right? That's why we don't have range anxiety. It's not, nobody's ever talked about the range of their petrol car, have they? You can only go 400 miles without refilling. It's not a topic of conversation at all. And this guy said it in one sentence. Now, here's what's interesting. What's interesting, okay? Range anxiety, when you, when you frame the problem as that, everybody has to solve it by spending 15,000 quid on a bloody enormous battery, which weighs a ton. If you talk about infrastructure anxiety, I can solve that with psychology and software. You just go to Google and you go to the car manufacturers who make sat-navs and just say, when people drive around in an electric car, just have a little push ping that says whenever they're in two miles of a reasonable charger that's available. And within about 20 miles or 100 miles of driving in this thing, these people will go, shit, there are chargers everywhere. I never knew. Partly, you know, there's range anxiety because petrol stations are really, really visible Okay, whereas electric charging stations aren't. One of the most interesting things you can look at is perceptual bias. Now, I'm the only person in the world who's ever written a newspaper article in The Spectator in defense of smart motorways. Because in principle, they're a really, really good idea. Uh, you have the most brilliant suggestion that you should only make them four lane when the speed drops below 50. So in other words, smart motorways should be brought in at times of congestion rather than four lane by default which I think is a superb idea, by the way. But the point I made is this, okay? You can't trust public opinion on smart motorways because nobody notices a, a, a traffic jam that didn't happen. So the downside of smart motorways is completely salient and visible, and the upside is unseen. And so being conscious of these effectively perceptual, behavioral, mental availability biases in what we actually assess, one of the most annoying things is, you, you, on a stretch of smart way to where you put the limit at 50, and everybody slows down to 50, and after and three miles later, they go, well, it wasn't an effing traffic jam. What the hell do they make me slow down for? It was the fact that you slowed down that stopped there being a traffic jam. So actually, this is a classic case, the smart motorway, where I think it actually requires an ad campaign and education so people get it. I'm a very regular user of one stretch of the M25. I think the smartification of the motorway has been a transformation because I'm in the rare position of having used it frequently enough to have noticed the improvement. But most people aren't like that. They go, oh, sod, it's one of these 50 limits. I'll end up with one other thing. You can always persuade people to do something if you give them a reason, even if the reason's a bit crap. So there's a famous psychological experiment where they go, um, please can I cut in the queue to the photocopier? For the younger people, a photocopier was a device that, you know, you know okay. Um, uh, because, um, because I have something really important to do. And lots of people didn't mind them cutting in. And they even tried the experiment, please can I cut into the photocopier because I have some copies to make. And weirdly, people were accepting of this. That an instruction with any because and I have the perfect illustration of this, which I was driving along the M25 at one o'clock in the morning, and um, it said, basically, suddenly said, 60 miles an hour. Then it said 50 miles an hour. And people just kept on going at 70, because it was one o'clock in the morning. And then they put on there, okay, livestock on road. Everybody slowed down to 30. So there is, you know, the, the value of psychology in any kind of instruction, any kind of persuasion, if you want to persuade, the natural default in government is to tell people what to do. Because you have access to legislation which businesses don't. Businesses have to persuade people to do stuff, which is difficult, 
But sometimes in the act of persuading people, you learn things that are surprisingly effective. And that's why I think we can solve this. We can actually see absolutely massive gains in transportation so long as we treat it as a Sudoku problem. And rather than putting people in sequentially, rather than deploying expertise sequentially, you get about five or ten people from different disciplines working in parallel and you'll see something really remarkable. That's Rory Sutherland, and that's only about a fifth of what we heard from him at the JCT Symposium, and it was tough to pick out that chunk among all that he shared with Transport Insights linked to wider examples. But the good news is we videoed that, and in fact the whole of the event and all the other papers will be available to you soon, thanks to the support of AGD Systems, Inrix, Message Maker Displays, PTV, Simplify Systems, Systems, Smart Micro UK and TRL Software, a fantastic industry resource thanks to JCT. Highways Voices, the podcast from highwaysnews.com. highwaysnews.com. Talking of sponsors, we're going to be at Highways UK next month producing daily podcasts. And if you want to be a sponsor, get in touch with me or Adrian and we'll sort out a deal for you. Now, time's almost up, but talking of Adrian, it's time for Adrian's Accolade. My accolade this week goes towards Transport for London in collaboration with the Mayor's Office for Policing and Crime and Charities Break and Road Peace. They are launching a new pilot victim support service to improve support for victims of the most serious road traffic collisions in London. It says the service will enhance the level of support available to families left bereaved and those injured and make it easier to access support they need following incidents that can often devastate lives in many ways. 102 people were killed and around 3,859 seriously injured on London's road last year alone. TfL says the devastating consequences for families, friends and communities impacted by these deaths and life-changing injuries is immense. Worthy winners indeed of my accolade this week. Thanks, Adrian. Tipping his hat again in Adrian's accolade. And as I said, Highways UK is around the corner, so we'll look ahead to that next week on Highways Voices. Join us for that on Wednesday. Catch you then. Highways Voices. Join us again next week for more insights from those that matter in the industry. 